The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The action in chapter 43 cross-cuts between Harl as he seeks illumination in the Thangarian shrine of Gruenmog and the rest of the party, who must wait outside, discussing the riddle and the poem amongst themselves. Inside the shrine, Harl meets Draylin Argentin, the speaker for the High Enzo. Unlike the other clerics of the shrine, Draylin is not iron-masked and has not taken an oath of silence. He has pledged himself to a somewhat different kind of spiritual service. Draylin's duties, among others, include giving voice to the interpretations of the High Enzo on those occasions when he reads the Rust. A rust reading is more than an augury, it is a communion with Grunmog himself. During the ritual, an iron chain is suspended in the thermal spring that provides the shrine with its holy water. Over time, rust forms on the chain and this rust is sprinkled on a flat metal surface for the High Enzo to read by interpreting the random patterns it forms. For Harl, the High Enzo has, somewhat surprisingly, agreed to perform such a reading. Harl may pose just three questions to his god. For the most part, Harl spends them wisely. The answers he receives do not allow him to solve the riddles on his own, but in the end, with Draylin's help, Harl emerges from the shrine, knowing what he has set out to learn. He knows where to find Blacknell's vault. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of dice rolling in the last episode, but that's about to change, and right away, because this episode is a double level up episode. Harl has finally reached level 4. But who else is about to gain in power? It's not Umura, nor Gyrios. It's not Eridine either. Actually, it is Sov Meramon. He attains level 7 today. Let's begin with Sov and circle back to Harl later. When I rolled up Sov's stats back in chapter 42, Sov rolled a 22 for hit points. With his new level, we'll add a d6 to this. Sov has no bonus or penalties to this roll, so it's a straight d6, and will min out at 4. The roll. A 1. Well, that's a min out, so Sov's hit points go up to 26. Ability score increase rolls are up next. Here we go. Strength. A 5. Intelligence. A 6. Okay. His 12 becomes a 13. Wisdom. Another 6. And in his prime requisite, This dark cleric has clearly been marked by his deity for greatness. It more than makes up for the bad hit point roll. 
His wisdom of 14 increases to a 15. And we still have three more rolls to make. Here's for dexterity. A two. And constitution? A three. Last one is charisma. I got a five. Well, it looks like the good luck ran out, but it seems that Sov has been reaching new levels of enlightenment on his quest as he travels towards Black Nail's vault. Lots of time for prayer, meditation, and introspection on the road, I suppose. Most importantly in this level up, Sov's ability to pray for spells increases. He can now hold the following. Two of each for level one, two, and three. One of level four, and, oh my, one of level five. Level five is as high as it gets in the expert rule books. That book only lists six spells at this level, but with the exception of the commune spell, the same one the High Enzo used last episode, there is one spell that stands out as the clear choice for a follower of the old god of decay. Those of you who know this book will have already guessed what it is. But let's leave that for another time and come back to Harl and his ascension to level four. This particular level up is a big deal for Harl because his saving throws all become slightly easier to make and his combat ability jumps up by two points on the to-hit table. If that weren't enough, Harl is now carrying a weapon that has become blessed through the rust-reading ritual. His weapon is now permanently enchanted with a plus one bonus. Harl was already a good fighter, now he is really a force to be reckoned with. Let's get to rolling for hit points and see what number we can add to his current score of 21. He'll min out on a five, rolling a d8. Here's the roll. Bad luck. I've just rolled a 2. I'll boost that to the min-out minimum of 5, and now Harl has 26 hit points. That's one fewer than Gyrios, by the way. Our last set of rolls is for potential ability score increases. I hope Sov didn't use up all the luck in my dice. Maybe I should have made all of Harl's rolls first. I must say, I've grown to be very fond of this character. Hard to believe he started out as little more than an extra way back in Chapter 10. What a long, long way he has come. I mean, he's the rightful chief of Dwarvar now. At least it seems so. Boy, what a responsibility. Now here's a sobering thought. If Harl were to fall, the next in line for the throne would be, well, maybe you can guess. Okay, enough pontificating. Let's roll some dice. Rolling for an increase in strength. A one. Intelligence. A four. Wisdom is next. A two. Hmm, this is not looking promising. Dexterity. A three. Constitution. Another one. Last chance. Charisma. I got a three. Too bad. It would have been poetic if his charisma had gone up right after he learned of his new title. Well, there's always next time. Chapter 44. Part 1. Day 55. Evening. Party status. Harl, 26 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 27 of 27. Eridine, 13 of 14. Umura, 16 of 18. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times two and Bless. Harl told them everything that had happened in the shrine as they covered the last few miles to Thangar. When he finished talking, Gyrios tried to congratulate him on successfully finding out the location of Blacknail's vault, but the young dwarf would accept no praise. I was a fool, Gyrios, Harl said, clearly angry with himself. 
A damned fool. I wasted one of those three precious questions. I could have asked whether or not Barak had gotten to the vault already, or whether or not he had found the horn. I could have asked whether my brother, Thurn, had died a warrior's death. I could have found out if anyone in my family still survived. It is possible that Valiador was wrong, you know. Girios looked from Harl to Umora and Eridine, and then back at Harl. The sun was beginning to dip in the clear western sky. They would reach Thangar before it touched the horizon. It was not far now. There is much I still do not understand, said the cleric. I know that this vault is important, and that it is said to contain the tooth of the dragon, but what exactly is this horn? I can remember how worried Cleneth seemed about it. Didn't she tell Barok that it would bring doom to your people? Yes, yes, she did say that, though I cannot say if she had the right of it. Well, I will share with you the little that I have heard. Believe me, it isn't much, as I am no historian. I also cannot say how much of it is accurate. The Elder Dwarves say that time may cover the truth of things just as snowfall covers the mountaintops in winter, layer by layer. In the end, much of the past may only be guessed at. Girios nodded in agreement, but was clearly eager to hear more, regardless. Well, where should I begin? I suppose I should start with what is well known. I have already told you that, during the battle with the Red Worm, Nerenumenex, my Keely Blacknail struck the beast such a blow with his hammer that it broke off one of her fangs and caused her to give up the fight. She fled into the south and was never seen again. You might expect such a victory to have brought peace to the Kazmirioth, but this was not the case. The giant and giant kin tribes who were once her followers and servants warred among each other and with my ancestors. The Egojin had been sundered and ruined, and Blacknell had been forced to lead his people to a new home. The place they built was called Tumultve Rulsa, the Buried Hall, and it is still there to this day. Blacknell was not willing to risk another disaster like the one that had cost them so many lives at the Egojin, and so this new home was built under a mountain, not atop one, as is our tradition. Surviving Nerenumenax had left the dwarves of the Egojin somewhat changed. The Tamultve Rulsa was unlike any other dwarven hold that had come before. It was designed with only one aim, to be defensible. And so it sacrificed some of the ostentation you might see in Dwarvar or Thangar for that single purpose. No giant or giant kin has ever seen the inside of it, although there was a time during the war when things looked hopeless, and the dwarves of the Tumultve Rulsa felt that defeat was inevitable, but that is a tale for another day. When you and Ursulith told the story of the three great champions, began Umura, now joining the conversation, I remember you saying that Blacknail's family built a tomb and hid Mykele's body away with the dragon's tooth. Precisely, Umura. Although, to be more precise, Mykele Blacknail built his own tomb. He did so in complete secrecy in the years leading up to his death. It is said that he hoped the tooth would never be found, but it is hard to know for sure. All of this happened seven and a half centuries ago. One thing we do know with certainty is that Mykele's son, Grithwip, was involved in the creation of the vault. Scholars seem to know quite a bit about him. Apparently, he was a talented artificer, which would make sense if history is correct in believing that his father was as well. Most believe that Grithwip was a tortured soul, and that he felt the pressure to live up to the Black Nail name his whole life, but could never distinguish himself as a truly great warrior. 
The story goes that Grithwip subverted his father's wishes immediately after his death. Apparently, he expanded the vault to make it into something more than a tomb, and that over the years he was seen less and less in the tumult Verosa, and eventually returned there no more. Some who knew Grithwip have said that he became obsessed with creating an artifact out of the tooth. The account you will hear will depend on which hold you are in when you hear it. In Thangar, they believe he forged the horn into a warhammer strong enough to pierce a dragon's skin. In the Buried Hall, many say he ground it into a powder and then combined it with holy water to create an elixir of immortality. They would have you believe that Grithwip is still there to this day, entombed with his own father and kin. Yes, that's right, Eredin. You heard me. And yes, I would agree it does have the ring of a ghost story. Anyway, in Dwevar, we mostly believe that Grithwip turned the tooth into a horn. The horn and hammer were on the crest of the Blacknail's house, you see, and Mykele was always known as the horn blower. Hmm? Yes, Eredin, just like on the tapestry you saw. For every dwarf who believes in these stories, there is one who believes they are nonsense, lies, or just plain mythology. Your guess is as good as mine. A historian could tell you more. Well, as I have said, I am no scholar. They walked in silence then for a few minutes before Girios exclaimed, Aha! The cleric smiled broadly and turned to face his companions. I can see the north gate ahead and the guardhouse lights. We shall be back in Thangar soon enough. Dramatis Personae Sav Merriman Twenty years ago, in the faraway empire of Koth. Had it not been forbidden to him, Sav Merriman would likely have taken no interest in the old chest his grandfather kept locked in the second floor study. Sav was twenty years old, a young man full of curiosity about the wide world that his grandfather, the great Moriel Merriman, a famous and successful explorer, had told him so many stories about. The Emperor himself had named Moriel an official champion of Koth, giving him a lofty status among an elite group of distinguished adventurers, generals, and sages. Moriel had been awarded property in addition to title. Sov had lived his whole life in a lord's manor built on a hill just outside the capital. Sov could not have been more proud to bear the name Merriman, it was a shame that his father did not seem to share or even enjoy the same sense of pride that came with the title. He had not taken up the life of a mercenary explorer, but spent his days working as a shipping clerk at the Lethwin port. The job was beneath him, and they certainly didn't need the money. The truth was that Sov's father and mother hated each other bitterly, and so his father had arranged it so that he was barely ever home. Since his final expedition, Moriel Merriman had not been the same. Once a lusty and ribald man with the heart of a sailor, quick with his wit as well as a blade, now he was at any given time melancholy or irritable, often in his cups. Whatever Moriel and his crew had discovered, it had changed them, those who returned anyway. Half of his crew had not survived to make the journey home. But if the boat had been light with sailors, it had been heavy with plunder. Their vessel, the White Eagle, had sailed for faraway shores. After a year at sail, its crews discovered an ancient temple. Sov's grandfather never spoke about the things they found inside, except sometimes in his sleep, whimpering while his wife listened helplessly in the dark. 
Most of the treasures they had brought back had been fed to the Emperor's greedy coffers, but the Emperor in his magnanimity had allowed each crewman to keep a small chest full of coins, jewels, and other valuables. To his grandfather, who had been the captain, he had awarded title, the hilltop manor, and a large chest filled with his choice of plunder. That chest was kept locked in his second-floor study. Sav knew that his grandfather often visited the room to look upon the treasure. The old man did so several times a day, compulsively, as though he feared someone might steal it. Sav could hear the lid of the chest creak open from where he stood, out of sight, on the stairs below. For as long as he could remember, Sav had wondered what was inside the chest. His grandfather never showed him. He hadn't even mentioned it. In fact, he had strictly forbidden Sav from entering the study. One day, Sav's curiosity got the better of him, and he slipped into the study between his grandfather's visits. It took him less than three minutes to find the key to the chest. It was simply placed out of sight upon the lintel over the door. A very tall young man, Sav had easily reached the key and, with a brief look over his shoulder, approached the chest. An eagle, painted on the lid in weathered and faded white, seemed to look at him sideways. Sav fit the key into the lock and turned it before his courage betrayed him. Hearing a soft click, he opened the chest, very slowly, trying to remain quiet. When it was open, Sav peered inside. No glow of gold coins shone up upon his face. No twinkle of gemstones glittered. In fact, Sav had at first thought the chest empty. He frowned in confusion and disappointment, and was about to close the lid when he saw something. Lying flat at the bottom of the chest was a square shape wrapped in black cloth. He lifted it from the chest and unwrapped it. In his hands, he held a book bound in some kind of black leather. It had a faint smell to it, like exotic spices. A single, unfamiliar rune in gold leaf marked the front cover. Bemused, Sav opened it to a random spot and looked at the page. Sometime later, when he reluctantly returned the book to the chest, Sav saw that he had missed something earlier. There was a second item lying in a groove cut into the bottom of the chest. Like the book, it had been wrapped in black cloth. He took it out, stealing a quick look over his shoulder to make sure he was still alone. He unwrapped a kind of strange tool. It was a rod with a thin, keen blade on one end and an ugly rusted hook at the other, no more than 12 inches from end to end. It had a pleasant weight to it and felt right in his hand. Imagining a sound on the steps, Sov hastily wrapped the odd thing and replaced it along with the book. He locked the chest, replaced the key on the lintel, and disappeared back down the stairs, trying to make sense of everything he had seen, everything he was now feeling. Over the following days, and then weeks and months, Sav found himself returning to the second floor study, timing his own visits between his grandfathers. He was careful never to leave a trace. He did not fear his grandfather's wrath, but he did not want to risk losing access to the marvelous book. Often Sav would read or study the illustrations and diagrams. These pictured acts of violence and degradation, but they fed his soul in a way that he had never thought possible. Now and then Sav would just hold the book in his hands for no other reason than he desired to hold it. When he wasn't with the book, he thought about it. At night, he dreamt of it. He was obsessed, consumed, utterly devoted.
Dungeon Dads is a podcast of four dads. John, Tim, Sam, and me, Tom, playing an epic game of D&D. But it's really a story of three mismatched heroes. Jonas Silverwind, a highborn wizard. I am going to cast Mage Armor. Abel Rockbrother, a wayward cleric. Tempest, will you please, in your infinite wisdom, help me to kill these men? And Filnir Omajira, a warlock who's made a pact with a higher power. I owe it my life. I guess you had to be there. Come for the epic adventure. This army of barbarians in fur and leather, they're rushing the war wagon. Stay for the dad jokes. <laughs> so, uh, here's the whole fellas. So, quoth the queen. And 80s references. People are people. So why should it be that you two should get along so awfully? Find us at DungeonDads.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, not bad. Uh, can we do one more take where you pretend like you actually like the show? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Chapter 44, Part 2, Day 55, Late Evening Party Status The party status is unchanged. They had entered a strangely quiet Thangar thirty minutes earlier, passing unchallenged by a guardhouse near the outer gate. A lone dwarf had peered out intently from behind an arrow slit, but had not moved to stop or question them. From then on, nothing seemed quite normal. The marketplace had closed for the night, but the various inns and taverns, including the dead troll, produced barely a murmur from within, and there was no music to be heard at all. The companions made their way to the palace in twilight, there were few people there either. Gone were the royal guards, clad in plate and moving in step with their twins. Instead, they found a solitary dwarf at arms, drowning in oversized chainmail and clutching a halberd a little too tightly. This guard looked too young for such a post, and when they asked him to lead them to Chief Augerstone, the youth had fumbled for words. The look on his face spoke plainly of his discomfort. He did not take them to the chief's salon as they had expected. Instead, he led them down a side passage to a place he called the Druon Beirulsa. Umura translated it for the other humans as the White Hall. A great archway flanked by twin statues of spear-bearing dwarves served for the main archway. This was Thangar's military academy and training ground. Chief Augerstone was not present. In fact, the place at first appeared to be deserted. As it was quite dark within, the humans in the party were unable to make out much detail. They followed Harl inside, and soon they saw the shape of a dwarf at the back of the hall. Moving closer, they recognized Seneschal Holgner Ringlock. The senior dwarf was meandering among the various weapons racks. When they drew near, he spoke, sadly tracing a finger down the length of a poleaxe without looking up. I was once quite good, you know. He sighed, not looking at the party members. Oh, I was never a champion. But I had a strong back, and I could swing a hammer as well as any other dwarf, I suppose. Hmm. <sighs> Look at me now. With that, the elder dwarf did lift his eyes. Old. Slow. Ringlock poked himself in the belly, and his fingers disappeared to the second knuckle. Out of shape. As before, silver bells and rings tied up in the man's beard jingled as he spoke, but softly. This time the seneschal was much less animated, much less frenetic in his movements. Where is everyone? asked Harl. We saw only a single guard at the palace entrance, likewise at the citadel gates. Hmm. 
Perhaps you expected to be arrested upon your return. It is unwise to ignore a chief summons, you know. Yes, yes, my lady, I did receive your letter of explanation. All the same, a chief's command cannot be simply cast aside. Well, that hardly seems important now. What do you mean? asked Harl. Where is Chief Augerstone? Where are all the guards? Ringlock bent down and lifted an item off the floor. It was a hooded Branabil lamp. He pulled back the cover, and an orange glow filled the room. Better, hmm? What in Grunmog's name has happened here? Don't be too alarmed, young warrior. Everything is well under control. The chief and most of the guards, well, every fighting dwarf we could spare, actually, are down in the mines. In the mines? Yes, it seems that something has burrowed into our own passageways. It's not as unusual as you might think. The High Enzo prays for guidance and reads the rust, which assists our master miners in choosing which way to dig, but that does not prevent creatures from occasionally breaking into our tunnels. Yes, of course, replied Harl. What manner of creature has broken in? Creatures, actually. A colony of Dolibril. Big ones, and numerous too. Usually we don't need to send so many warriors. It makes me uneasy to hold the sanctuary on my own. This is most unwelcome news, said Harl flatly. Ringlock shrugged. I'm sure Chief Augerstone has things under control, young Stonecarver. No, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, the timing is not good. Ah. Well, maybe it's just easier if you read this. Harl handed over Valiador's letter, and they all waited while the Seneschal read it from top to bottom. His face, pale in the glow of the Branabil light, grew bloodless as he scanned the lines. Can I assume that since you carry this letter that Glimmerax is no more, Master Stonecarver? Or should I bow and call you Chief Stonecarver? Ringlock frowned as he handed the letter back to Harl. I did not know him personally, but I have heard that he had a mighty soul. I am sorry for your loss. Did he die in combat? Harl pressed his lips together and shook his head sadly. Most regretful. Most regretful indeed. Well, I am not familiar with any horn, but it seems Valiador is concerned about it. If immediate action is required, then it is true that the timing could not be worse. But Harl, even if Baynor were here right now, there is nothing he could do. The location of Blacknail's vault is one of the best-kept secrets in Dwarven history. Harl removed the other paper from the scroll case gripped in his left hand. Ringlock continued slowly, thoughtfully. But of course, you already know that. Is this what I think it is? The Seneschal lifted an eyebrow in doubt. Harl nodded gravely. A map showing the location of Blacknail's vault. I have spoken with the High Enzo who read the rust for me. With his help and that of the priests, we believe we know the spot. Harl handed over the map and continued speaking while Ringlock looked it over, blowing out his cheeks in surprise as he did so. My intention was to return here and give the map to Chief Augerstone. I had hoped he might provide me with a force of warriors to retake Dwarvar. As for the vault, a small detachment of dwarfs could be sent east to confirm the location and keep it safe. Ringlock looked at Harl blankly. What force of warriors? What small detachment for that matter, Chief Stonecarver? Look around. There is no one here. 
I agree that someone should go to the location on this map, and without delay. It is also clear to me who that person must be. Harl instantly gleaned the other dwarf's meaning. Absolutely not. Send someone else. I must return to Dwarvar. I have to help my family. I swore to avenge the murder of Valiador's son. If what Valiador's letter says is true, the damage at the High Forge is done. Your vengeance can wait. It will have to wait. Ridlock, that was not my intention. Harl's voice was beginning to crack. Intention or no, don't you see? It must be you. You must go to Blackmail's vault. There is, simply, no one else. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider lending your support. There are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show on forums or retweet episode release announcements, leave a rating or review on your preferred podcatcher, or simply tell a friend. My gratitude to everyone who has done any of these things to help out. Speaking of helping out, here's a review by T. Barney on the Podbean app. T. Barney writes, If you like grimdark RPGs, the tale of the manticore is going to be right up your alley. The gritty storytelling, suspenseful music, and random dice rolls will have you on the edge of your seat. When John says that no character is safe, he means it. That's a big part of the OSR charm that he brings with every episode. I'm also amazed at the high-quality voice acting and music score that takes this audio drama over the top. Thanks for all your hard work. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you too, T. Barney, for taking the time to write that, and for making my day with that great review. I'm so happy that you enjoy the show. My appreciation is also due to the people whose voices bring the story to life. Returning to the show is the very talented Chris Hussey from the Adventures of Young and Holt and Gun for Hire Deadlands actual play podcasts. Once again, Chris is playing Holgna Ringlock, Seneschal of Thangar. Thanks so much for your contribution to the show, Chris. For show notes, maps, and for this episode, an updated set of character sheets complete with ability scores as well as other thoughts, drawings, etc., etc., please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. If you use social media, find me on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast and on Twitter using the handle at Manticore Tale. I can be reached by email too at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I mentioned last time that I'm thinking of doing a bonus episode sometime in the future to answer the questions that I receive through email. If there's anything you'd like to know, now's the time to ask. The adventure continues on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Have you ever dreamt of being a superhero? Legends of Superhero Story is a new actual play podcast using the Legends Superhero role-playing game system, available on all podcast platforms. This exciting new superhero tabletop RPG follows our Game Master Jack and our fledgling heroes played by Chad, Emily, Amanda, and Daniel as they work their way through their origin story and beyond. Listen in as they discover their powers and abilities. Let's hope they learn to work together as a team in time to save the world and truly become legends. Legends of Superhero Story is available on all podcast platforms. For more information, follow us on social media at The Legends Cast or visit our website, www.matchplaygames.ca forward slash The Legends Cast. Legends Cast.